We do appreciate everybody being here again this evening. I hope you brought your Bibles with you. Just going to do a little Bible study tonight. And so uh, I hope you brought your Bibles with you and studied carefully with us. Roger, before he read, referred to my sermons the last couple of times that I preached uh, about uh, consequences of our decisions and those kinds of things. And this morning I had intended to tell a little story that illustrated how sometimes our decisions can end up in kind of bad consequences. Uh, when I was about 10 years old, I was a young boy, I was 10 years old, we lived in a neighborhood, I think it's called Rolling Meadows, and there are a lot of houses in the neighborhood, and there are lots of kids in my neighborhood about my age, and Tim Smith lived behind me, and J.T. McMickle lived up the road, and, and we'd go out, we'd play, and we'd, we might play ball, or just, just hang out. Well, in the neighborhood, at the intersections of the streets, there were, there were street signs, and there were the names of the streets on the street signs, just regular street signs. So we were hanging out one day, and, and we noticed that the pole for the street sign on that corner, it, it was kind of loose, and, and you could turn it. And so, and so we turned it so that the street sign was wrong. And so instead of this being Elm Street, uh, it, the sign read Main Street. And it's this to be in Main Street, it read Elm Street. And we thought, well, that's kind of a silly thing to do. We were little mischief, mischievous kids. And we left it that way. Didn't think very much about it, really. Just thought that that's kind of, that's kind of a funny thing. Well, probably a couple of months later, we were out playing, and we noticed an ambulance driving by. And it drove down the, down the road, down the street, got down there a little ways, and it turned around, it, it came back. And then it drove up this way a little bit, it, it turned around, it went back. We figured out, oh, he's looking for a house, and he's on the wrong street. He thinks this is Main Street, it's Elm Street. And here is an ambient that didn't have a siren all, lights on, or anything like that, but he's obviously looking for a house. And I don't exactly know how that was resolved. <laughs> but just illustrates how sometimes you make a, what you think is an, maybe just a, an innocent choice of very little consequence, but if you're not careful, if you're not doing the right thing, well then it can really kind of come back to bite you. That's not what I'm going to talk about tonight. I just wanted to work that illustration in because I thought it uh, illustrated the point pretty well uh, that just have to be careful about the decisions we make. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 22 tonight. Matthew chapter 22. When, when I open my Bible to the table of contents, I notice that there's two great divisions in the Bible. There, there's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament all in the same Bible. Should it be that way? Should we combine the Old Testament and the New Testament in the same book? Or maybe it just should be the Old Testament is one book and then detached from that is the New Testament, just a totally separate book. Are we right to combine them into the same book as if they were part of the same, part of the same book or the same work? We've kind of talked about the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament in recent weeks. We saw that there was discontinuity between Old and New, that the Old Covenant has been taken away. We saw that taught in several passages in the New Testament. And so its law, the law associated with the Old Testament, it's not binding anymore. And so the, the practices, the laws, the ordinances, the rules, the, the, uh, the ritual, the ceremony associated with the old covenant, those things are, 
no longer binding on us today. The sacrificial system, the temple system, all of that part of the Old Covenant that was taken away. But we also seen that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, contains truth. It is the Word of God. We tried to, to show that. It is the Word of God, and so it teaches truth. What it says is truth. And what we tried to do last time is take a look at an Old Testament passage that's quoted several times in the New Testament and, and st see how it's used, how the truth of that passage is used by New Testament writers. And, and, and they do that quite frequently, in fact. We're studying the book of Revelation. We've made the point several times that the book of Revelation is almost saturated with references to the old. And uh, that happens many times in the New Testament. So, and so how do the New Testament writers use the Old Testament? Well, they reach back there and they find truth and they quote it and use it to support their points. They see information concerning Christ in the Old Testament Messianic prophecies and, and they quote those and show how they're fulfilled in Christ. And, and so there is continuity then in that way between the Old and the New. And so, yes, it's, it's right, it's proper for us to put Old Testament and New Testament together in one book because they are, uh, they, the, the New Testament does continue the Old Testament. I've heard it expressed this way. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You ever heard that before? That's a pretty good way to say it. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And so you can see prophecies of Christ and and uh, that kind of information in the Old. And then the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so take the prophecies and they come to pass in the New. Well, anyway, let's, let's continue. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus answers a series of questions. Uh, there, on this occasion, it's not wrong to test a teacher. We're told to try the spirits and put a teacher to the test. Nothing wrong with that. If you're really trying to ascertain whether he's a truth teller or teacher of the truth or not, it, it's right to ask questions. But in, on this occasion, they're coming to Jesus and they're trying to trap him in what he said. That's what verse 15 says. And so they ask him a series of questions. Is it right to pay tribute to Caesar or not? Well, he answers that one. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And he deals with that question very effectively. And then which one is the greatest commandment in the law? That's the third question that he was asked. And, and Jesus answers that as well. Well, the next phase in the story begins in verse 41. The Pharisees gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. And now, now he's going to put them to the test. And so if it's right to test a teacher by asking them questions and putting them to the test, well, Jesus is doing the right thing. And in doing that, Jesus exposes them as inferior teachers or teachers that you can't depend on or they lack understanding, they lack knowledge and insight. And so he exposes them and their inadequacy as teachers by the question he asks. And so he says in verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, the son of David. And they probably answer that right off. The Christ, whose son is he? Son of David. They've been studying their Old Testament. They knew the answer to that. Then the follow-up question was a little bit more difficult. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Now that's a quotation from the 110th Psalm. Now that's the question, that's the Psalm we're going to look at tonight and see how it's used in the New Testament. It's quoted several times in the New Testament. I'll count it up at least 20 references or quotations of this Psalm in the New Testament. This, this is one of them. And so whose son is he? The, the Christ, whose son? he's the son of David. Well, well, if he's David's son, how can David call him Lord? And so Psalm 110, the Lord, Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, put your enemies beneath your feet. Verse 45, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. That's kind of a funny thing to me. That last comment, that was the end of the questions, all right? Don't anybody ask him any more questions after that. So he just kind of puts them to shame, doesn't he? It wasn't hard for him to do. Well, let's go back to Psalm 110, having introduced it a little bit. Let's go back to Psalm 110, and let's just see how this psalm is used in the, Old Test, in the New Testament. It's a, it's a short psalm, ten, uh, seven verses. So let's just read through it. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, if you've been studying the Bible very long, you'll, you'll notice a couple of very familiar statements in, in that psalm. The, fir the, the first one is in the first verse. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The second one that's so familiar is there in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the psalm is about the king. It's sort of a, a royal psalm. It can be divided up into two sections as you see here. The first section highlights, uh, deals with the Lord as king. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, which is the place of rule and authority and reign, until I make your enemies the footstool for your feet. The second highlights the role of the king as priest. And so the king will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's sort of an unusual feature. Kings are not, are not priests. You remember in Genesis 49, Judah is the ruling tribe, and David is from the tribe of Judah, and David's descendants would be from the tribe of Judah. Now priests were from the tribe of Levi, and so you wouldn't usually have a king serving as a priest or a priest serving as the king. They come from different tribes. But in this case, this king will be a priest. <laughs> Sit in my right hand, that's the place of rule, and then you'll be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the psalm discusses the reign of the king priest. God appoints this one to both positions. And so the Lord invites the Lord to come and sit at his right hand. And so, and so God is appointing him to that position. But God has also sworn with an oath, not going to change his mind, 
you're a priest forever. And so he's appointed by God to both positions. Talks about the administration of his rule. Not, not his rule, but really God's rule. And so you can see in the second verse, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. So the Lord is really ruling, that the king is administering the rule of God. He rules over his own people. They volunteer freely and his enemies as he defeats them and crushes them and, and uh, uh, rules over them. He enjoys the free will service of his subjects. You can see that here. And they offer themselves freely, verse 3, in the day of your power. And then finally, uh, his rule is not merely one of destruction, but one of vitality and hope. Uh, in holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as dew. And so you can kind of see that, that vitality and youth and new beginning and freshness in, in, that, in that statement. So let's see how this psalm is used in the New Testament. Just a couple of different, uh, four different ways. We'll have to hurry through this tonight. Time's getting away from me. First of all, as we've seen, Jesus uses the psalm to confound those who are testing him. Uh, and so, Matthew chapter 22, back in that passage, remember they ask him these three questions. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar in the resurrection? Whose wife will she be? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus turns around after answering all those very effectively, and he says, I've got a question I want to I ask you. And, uh, you know, the, the Christ, whose son is he? Well, the son of David. Well, then how does the, David call him his Lord? And so you can see that in the psalm. The Lord, so you notice the first word, Lord, all capital letters, that's Yahweh, Jehovah. Yahweh, Jehovah, Dave, this is the Psalm of David. David's writing, Jehovah says to my Lord. And so David recognizes this one who's being addressed as his Lord. Well, that's the Messiah, isn't it? That's, that's the Christ. Who else would David call his Lord? Well, that'd have to be the Christ, the Messiah. And so... David calls him Lord, and in doing that, recognizes, acknowledging the Messiah's superior rank. The Messiah is greater than David. David recognizes that and acknowledges that by calling him Lord. But then, on the other hand, the Messiah is David's son. Now, it'd be very unusual for a father to call his son my Lord, wouldn't it? That, that, that just wouldn't happen. Yeah, that's what David does. That the Messiah will be David's son. Now, how do we know that? Well, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll go back there and read that. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there, uh, we, f we find this promise made by God to David that one of his descendants, one of his offspring, would sit on his throne forever. And so the Messiah is going to be the descendant of David. Of course, the New Testament goes to great lengths to establish that Christ is a descendant of David. Both genealogies in Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, tie the Messiah, tie Christ back to David. So here's the difficulty that, that's involved. The Lord in the passage is the Messiah. The Messiah is invited by Yahweh, by, by Jehovah, to sit at His right hand, the place of authority and dominion and rule. The Messiah is going to rule over His kingdom from God's right hand. And David acknowledges his superiority by calling him Lord. But at the same time, the Messiah is David's son. And that's Jesus' question. How can the Messiah be both David's Lord and David's son? How, how can that be? 
And they weren't able to answer that. How can the Messiah be both of superior rank and David's son, which would be lower in rank? Well, we know the answer, don't we? Uh, now, the Pharisees didn't know the answer, but the answer is found in the union of the two natures in Christ. And so the Bible teaches that Christ is fully divine, that, that He has, possesses full deity. He exercises the prerogatives of God. In John chapter, uh, well, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus forgives sin. Remember the men brought their friend on a stretcher to where Jesus was. The house was so full they had to dig down through the roof and let their friend down where Jesus was. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Well, their response is, well, who can forgive sins by God? But God, which is correct. <laughs> but Jesus goes on to say, so that you'll know that I have the authority to forgive sin, I'm going to enable this man to walk, which he does. Jesus is God. He is God with us. He possesses full deity. He's not part God. He's not mostly God. <laughs> you know, He possesses full deity. He gives life. And so He raises people from the dead. There are three instances of Christ raising people from the dead in the New Testament. In John 11, He raises Lazarus. In Luke chapter 7, the widow of Nain. In Matthew chapter 9, Jairus' daughter. He receives worship. He allows people to worship Him, which would be blasphemous if it wasn't uh, legitimate. And so in John chapter 9, Jesus gives the blind man his sight. And at the end of the story, the blind man acknowledges Jesus as Christ. Uh, and uh, he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped Him. Really, from the time Jesus is a child, the wise men come and they worship Him. And then during his lifetime, you have people like this worshiping him. And then after his resurrection, as he's ascending, the disciples are worshiping him. But Jesus himself would just worship God. You worship God and him only shall you serve. But he allows people to worship him. And it's legitimate because he is fully God. The New Testament clearly calls him God on a number of occasions. Remember the confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God. And so Jesus, the Lord, the Christ, is superior to David because he possesses deity. But according to the flesh, he's David's son. And so he possesses full humanity. Uh, people recognized Jesus and interacted with him as a man. And so when people approached Jesus as he was on the earth, he didn't glow, he didn't have a halo or anything like that that would distinguish him from from ordinary men. People dealt with him and interacted with him as they did ordinary men. And so he is found in appearance as a man. Philippians chapter 2 tells us he had the experiences of man. He got hungry, he got thirsty, he got tired, he sweated, he bled. And um, he took on the form, is one of the words used in Philippians chapter 2, took on the form of a servant and was made in appearance as a man. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, he's called a man. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And so just like the New Testament calls Jesus God, it also calls him a man. Hebrews chapter 2 is a good passage to make this point. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. And so he's made like human beings, his brethren, in, all, in every way. He was like us, of course, without without sin. And so Jesus was David's son in that he descended from David. But he was David's Lord as the Son of God. And so 
We understand the passage clearly. He's both the Son of David in the flesh and the Son of God in the Spirit. He's declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, there's no way the Pharisees could have understood that, really. Could they? they just they couldn't have an answer for that. But, but Jesus uses this psalm to teach that truth. See, he's, he's, there's truth in Psalm 110, and Jesus uses that to teach us something about who He is. Fully God, fully man. Well, here's a, a second use of the psalm in the New Testament. Peter uses it to establish the beginning of the kingdom of God. So let's go to Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter's sermon is designed to convince the audience that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That's, that's how the sermon ends. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And he quotes Scripture in order to support his point. One of the Scriptures he quotes is, the 110th Psalm, but, but there are others. The 16th Psalm is also quoted. And so here's Peter's argument. Jesus is raised from the dead. So that's the first point. Jesus is raised from the dead. Now two things support that. First of all, there's the, one, there's the 16th Psalm which says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And so the 16th Psalm supports the resurrection of Jesus. His body will not decay. But our eyewitness experience also supports that. We, we are eyewitnesses of His resurrection. And so Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now that raises a question. Where is He? <laughs> if Jesus is raised from the dead, where, where, where is He? Well, Peter explains that not only has God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated Jesus at his right hand. And um, so this one that God raises now sits at God's right hand on David's throne, where he rules over his kingdom. So let's begin in verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you that regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to see one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, that's Psalm 110, isn't it? The right hand of God. So remember, that's, that's the very first verse. Sit at my right hand. So he's been raised and he's been exalted. He's ascended to the right hand of God, the, the position of rule and dominion. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this which you both see and hear. It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, David says, The Lord said to my Lord, You sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so the resurrection, the ascension to the right hand of God, sitting on the throne, are all united in Jesus. And so Peter, day of Pentecost, uses Psalm 110 to establish the reign of Christ. When did the reign of Christ begin? It began when Christ was raised, ascended to God's right hand, where the Lord invited Him to come, sit at my right hand, and he rules there until, and we'll talk about that in, in just a moment. The kingdom of God is here today. 
Jesus is ruling today. Jesus is sitting at God's right hand today. That's the position of rule and authority. That's the position of reign. He's ruling today. Now, he's not ruling over a physical kingdom like the United States or other physical geopolitical kingdoms. It's a kingdom that's, as he tells, Jesus tells Pilate in John 18, verse 36, it's a kingdom that's not of this world. And so it consists of men and women throughout the world, not any particular location, geographical location, but spread throughout the world, men and women who submit to the authority of Christ, who obey the gospel of Christ, and who, whose lives are governed by the authority of Christ. Jesus says it this way in Luke 17, verse 21, the kingdom of God is within you. It's within us. It's in our hearts as we submit our hearts to the reign of Christ. So when did that begin? When he sat at the right hand of God. When he was raised from the dead, he ascended, he sat at the right hand of God. The kingdom begins as people submit themselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. And so Peter goes back into the Old Testament, Psalm 110, picks up on these statements. Sit at my right hand to make your enemies the footstool of your feet. Shows how that they are fulfilled in Christ. Here's a third way this psalm is used. said it was used at least 20 times. The references to Jesus being at the right hand of God uh, recall or echo this passage. It may not be a direct quotation, but they're based on that statement in Psalm 110. It's cited in Hebrews to describe the nature of Christ's rule. Or we might say, remember we said in Psalm 110 that you have a, a king who is also a priest? And so that's the nature of his rule. At least that's one aspect of his rule. That not only is he king, but he also does his work as priest. So the book of Hebrews makes that point by quoting from Psalm 110, well, on more than one occasion. And so in uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17, it's attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then Verse 21, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. And so this whole discussion about Christ and Melchizedek comes out of the 110th Psalm. So let's talk about that a little bit. We're introduced to Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. Now, Melchizedek is a minor character in the Bible. He's uh, mentioned only briefly, only just a few verses uh, refer to Melchizedek. And and of course, he has a prominent role in Hebrews, but he has a, a minor role, so to speak, in, in the Old Testament. Abraham is returning from battle, and he meets Melchizedek as he returns home. Melchizedek is, uh, is described as priest of God most high. Now, he's not a relative of Abraham. He's not, he's not a son of Abraham or anything like that. He's, he's not related to Abraham, but he's described as a priest of God most high. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Now, the book of Hebrews makes that point. Remember, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. So anyway, he bless, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives one-tenth of the plunder that he took from the battle. He gives a tithe of it to Melchizedek. Melchizedek lived in Salem, a, a, a city called Salem, a town named Salem which is related to the word for peace, shalom. 
All right? So some questions then arise. Melchizedek just kind of appears out of nowhere. And so these questions arise. Who, is, who are his parents? Uh, how did he become a priest? Uh, when, when did he begin his work as a priest? When did his work as a priest end? When was he born? When did he die? And really, we don't know the answer to any of those questions. We just don't have the answer to any of them. It's almost as if he doesn't have a birth. He doesn't have a death. He doesn't have... He didn't get his office as priest by inheriting it from his parents. And so, as far as the record is concerned, that's all the information that we've got. And so, he's not a Levitical priest. Levi had not even been born yet. The Levitical priest had not even been instituted yet. His birth and his death are not recorded it's as if he didn't have either one. His work doesn't have a beginning or an end, at least as far as the record is concerned. Now, when David wrote this passage, Psalm 110, the Levitical priesthood had been in force for about 400 years. So David lives about 1000 B.C. and, and Moses writes about 1400 B.C. So Levitical priesthood had been in force, had been active, for about 400 years, but this passage says there's going to be another priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so just kind of put that in your mind and we're going to come back to it. And so what we find here is sort of a foreshadowing of Christ, a, a type of Christ. And Christ answers, he's sort of the, the, the corresponding figure to the Old Testament figure, Melchizedek. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 7. The writer asks, if the Levitical priesthood and its sacrifices were sufficient, why would David look forward to another different priest? Remember we said this is 400 years after the institution of the Levitical priesthood. If it was so great, why would David look forward to another one after a different order? Now David doesn't say that one of these Levitical priests is going to be much better than the other. He says there's going to be a whole different order, the Melchizedekian order, if that's a, if that's a word. And so that in itself implies that the Levitical priesthood is just not sufficient. There are some problems with the Levitical priesthood. The death of the priest meant they had to consistently and constantly be replaced. The sins of the priest meant that those sins had to be atoned for before they could atone for the sins of others. But Christ, because He's a priest of a different order, solves these problems. Christ doesn't die, so He doesn't have to be replaced. And Christ has no sin, and so He doesn't have to atone for His own sin. We see that in Hebrews 7, verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for us. And then verse 27, Christ doesn't need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for His own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this He did once for all when He offered up Himself. And so, Christ Himself is sinless. See that from Hebrews chapter 4. He uh, is like us in every way except for sin. So he's sinless, and so as a result, he's able to atone for the sins of others. There's one more problem that uh, the writer in Hebrews 7 deals with. You see, the law of Moses 
only permitted priests coming from Levi, the tribe of Levi. That was the only priest, the only tribe from which priests could come. That was it. And Christ came from a different tribe. Now that's a problem. <laughs> How can Jesus serve as priest if he's not from the right tribe according to the law? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? When the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of the law. All right, we're going to change the law. Wait, I illustrate this sometimes. Let's say we had a candidate for president. Everybody agreed, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, everybody. This is the guy for the job. Now, I don't expect that to happen. Let's just use your imagination and, and kind of think about that. Everybody agrees. But you know what? Wasn't born in the United States. We need to change the law. <laughs> well, that's, that's something like what happens with Jesus. He's the most qualified to be high priest. Endless life, sinless, all of those things. But it's from the wrong tribe. We're going to change the law. And so, again, verse 12. When the priesthood is changed, of necessity, there takes place a change of the law also. Remember all those passages we looked at a few weeks ago that talked about how the law has come to an end? Well, just add this one then to the, to the list. And so... What does all this show us? It shows us the superiority of the priesthood of Christ, one completely sufficient to atone for sin. We have a better priest offering a better sacrifice, his own blood, serving in a better temple in heaven before God. God, God has an eternal plan. It, it really began with Moses and works through Jacob and his sons and the 12 tribes, works through Melchizedek all the way up to Christ. God has an eternal plan that he's working out through human history, and we're the beneficiaries of it. Now, I'm going to look at one more, very, very quickly, I suppose. Uh, this psalm, the 110th psalm, establishes the duration of Christ's reign. So we have the beginning of Christ's reign, Acts chapter 2, because the nature of the reign, he's a king, priest, and now the duration of the reign. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we looked at this a few weeks ago, so maybe we don't have to spend a great deal of time with it. But he's dealing with the subject of the resurrection. There are some who are denying the resurrection altogether, and so Paul deals with that. In the passage we're going to look at, beginning in verse 20, he looks to the future when the resurrection will occur, and he gives an order of events that are connected to the resurrection. So one day, everyone who's in the grave will come forth. Those are the words of Jesus in John chapter 5. But Paul talks about that general resurrection when, when all are raised. And so you can see that uh, in verse 21. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So he's talking about the general resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. Now the first event, the first important event connected with that is Christ's resurrection. Verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those that are asleep. And so the first event, important event, connected to the general resurrection is Christ's resurrection, because He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So that's the first event. The next event is Christ's return. 
And so verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then after that, those who are Christ at his coming. So the next thing that's going to happen is the coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And at the return of Christ, the dead will be raised. And so you see that again, verse 23. Christ the first fruit, then the general resurrection at Christ's coming. Then comes the end. Then comes the end, verse 24. The end of what? The end of Christ's reign. And so you see in verse 24, when he hands over the kingdom to God, the God and Father, when he's abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. That's, that's Psalm 110, isn't it? He'll reign until all enemies are put under his feet. The last enemy is death. And so at his coming, when the dead are raised, Christ the Son will prove himself ruler of all and hand the kingdom over to his Father. And so it's something like this. Here's a king in the ancient world. And for a period of time, for some reason, he gives the reign of the kingdom, the rule over the kingdom, to his son. Maybe he has a journey to go on or something, or maybe he's ill or something like that. For a period of time, he gives the dominion to his son. But at the appropriate time, the son gives the dominion to the father. All right, so that's something like what's going on here in this passage. Christ rules from the right hand of God until the last enemy is defeated. So notice that until. Until the last enemy is defeated. What's the last enemy? The enemy, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so we find out the duration of Christ's rule. When will it end? At his return. When the dead are raised and he turns the kingdom back over to his father. Doesn't begin at his return, that it ends at his return. Verse 24, then comes the end. Now why is this the end? Well, Scripture says he's going to reign until the last enemy is defeated, and the last enemy is death. It's going to be defeated when everyone's raised. Death doesn't have any dominion over them any longer. And so, from the psalm, we learn the beginning of Christ's reign, we learn the nature of that reign, and we learn the duration of the reign, all from Psalm 110, all used by New Testament writers to show those things. I appreciate your patience. Time got away from me tonight. But uh, there is a connection, a continuity between old and new, a really strong continuity. Now, we don't continue to practice its laws, its rituals, its ceremonies. Those things have been done away with. But the truth that's taught there, the truth that we find in the Old Testament, that's, that's truth even today. You can see that in a passage like Psalm 110. And I might look at another passage or two before all this is done uh, to make, uh, just to illustrate it a little bit further. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your great plan that, uh, that you have, have brought about and worked through over the centuries uh, that you brought about through Abraham and, and David and, and through Christ, and that we can be the beneficiaries of that. Father, we're thankful for your revelation in Scripture, that we can see this great plan, and we stand in awe of it, Father, as we think about how you worked this plan and brought these things about 
through the lives of, of men and women through the centuries. And we, we stand in awe, not only of the plan itself, but of your great power and wisdom as you brought that plan to its fruition and completion in Christ. Father, we're thankful that Jesus came into the world, that he atoned for our sins as our high priest. We're thankful that he sits at your right hand, that he rules over us. And we pray, Father, that we'll acknowledge his dominion and his authority by submitting to his will and doing his will in our lives. Help us, Father, to continue to study your word, to be good students of the word, to, to understand better and deeper what your word has to, to say to us. And help us then, Father, be able to teach it to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here tonight and you're